Please turn in your Bibles this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We're going to be looking at verses 4 through 7. Last week we looked at the indispensability of love, that without love we are nothing. Today we're looking at the activity of love. So let me read 1 Corinthians 13, and we're looking at verses 4 through 7, but let me read from verse 1, just so we can get into the flow of the text. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. What is love? The answer to that question depends on who's defining it. If Hallmark is defining it through their movies and cards, love is a sort of sappy, syrupy, sympathetic feeling you get about someone else in which you wish someone well, projecting good feelings toward them as hard as you can, but you don't really do anything else for them. I'm sure that's not how Hallmark would put it, but that's just the impression I get. If Hollywood is defining it, defining what love is, love is more of a greedy desire to possess someone for your own satisfaction. And you'll serve them as long as they serve you, but you'll quickly discard them if they stop satisfying you. Now, if the Holy Spirit is defining love as he does in his word, love is revealed in the actions of God. It is an unwavering commitment to the well-being of others who do not deserve it and who cannot repay it. We see this in Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 8, where Paul says, For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. 1 John 4, verse 8 and verse 16 says that God is love. So God defines love by who he is and by what he does. Jesus Christ is God the Son incarnate. So in other words, Jesus is love incarnate. If you read in 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 through 7, if you read these verses and you substitute the word love with the name Jesus, you will find a perfect description of the love of Christ. It is love as defined by God that is the topic of Paul's writing here in 1 Corinthians 13. <clears throat> it is this kind of love that the Corinthian believers had lost sight of, and it is the kind of love that you and I can easily lose sight of today. Selfish love. Selfish love had replaced selfless love within that congregation. 
And if we are to guard against that same kind of unholy replacement taking place here, it's important that we understand exactly what kind of love God is commanding us to show to one another. In this passage, we're going to see, first of all, at the beginning of verse 4, what love does. What love does. One thing we need to make note of before we begin to analyze this passage in depth is that Paul describes love in terms of what love does. Every single descriptor in these verses that we're looking at is a verb in the Greek language. Paul does not use any adjectives here to describe love. He only uses verbs, action words, to describe love. Now, this is not to say that the love God calls us to show one another is cold action without any feeling at all. It's not that at all. But it is to say that love does not begin and end with only emotion. God is not, or love is not only emotion, it is also action. If God only loved us with feelings, we would still be dead in our sins and headed for hell. We needed God to love us by acting on our behalf, an act he has in the person of his son. Paul begins by telling us what love does. Verse 4 starts out by saying that love is patient. Love is patient. The verb form of the Greek word for patient means in this context, according to one lexicon, quote, to bear up under provocation without complaint, unquote. To bear up under provocation without complaint. That's what love does. Love bears up under provocation without complaint. Now, is this a good description of Jesus? Did Jesus bear up under provocation without complaint? Yes, of course he did. The greatest display of his patience came where? On the cross. After they had driven nails through his hands and feet to fasten his body upon the cross, do you remember what Jesus prayed in Luke chapter 23 and verse 34? Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Jesus' love for people did not fail even at that point when they were nailing him to a cross. The love of Christ bore up under that provocation without complaint. Now let me ask, is this a good description of you? When people insult you, or treat you unfairly, or when your spouse doesn't treat you with love and respect, or when your children don't honor you, or when your coworkers or boss don't appreciate you, do you bear up under that provocation without complaint? Because if not, then you can be sure that you are not loving others at that moment. Instead, you're loving yourself. You're being committed to the good of yourself instead of the good of others at that moment because love that is a commitment to the good of others is patient not impatient next paul says that love is kind again paul uses a verb form of of the word kindness and it means to be kind or to show kindness love shows kindness to others and being kind is one of those things that it's hard to define but you know it when you see it. What does it mean to show kindness to others? Well, God has shown us by his own actions 
toward us what kindness looks like. Let's look at Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 4. Verses 4 through 7 of Ephesians 2. It says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. What does the kindness of God include? It includes him loving us raising us up with Christ after making us alive with Christ and seating us with Christ in the heavenly places. That's what the kindness of God looks like that he has shown to us. Next, let's turn to Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3 and verses 4 through 7 here. Paul writes, But when the kindness of God our Savior appeared and his love for mankind... He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. You notice what verse 4 says, when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared. Was Jesus kind? Yes. We see here in this passage in Titus 3 that Jesus is the kindness of God incarnate. When the kindness of God our Savior appeared. Where did we see the kindness of God appear but in the person of Jesus Christ? Jesus as the God-man is the great revealer of the kindness of God. A kindness that reaches out to do us good when we don't deserve it. That's what showing kindness is. It is doing good to those who don't deserve it. Listen to Luke chapter 6, verses 27 through 36. These are the words of Jesus defining for us what kindness is and what kindness does, what love does by showing kindness. Luke 6, starting in verse 27, Jesus says, But I say to you who hear, Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. Whoever hits you on the cheek, offer to him the other also. And whoever takes away your coat, do not withhold your shirt from him either. Give to everyone who asks of you, and whoever takes away what is yours, do not demand it back. Treat others the same way you want them to treat you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. If you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners in order to receive back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he himself is what? Kind. To who? To ungrateful and evil men. Be merciful, 
just as your Father is merciful. That's what love does. And it is the kindness of God that according to Romans chapter 2 and verse 4, it is the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. We see God's goodness toward us, all the undeserved blessings he has poured out upon us, and we come to the realization that we have deserved the opposite treatment from God. And it causes us to become ashamed of our ungrateful wickedness, and we run to God for forgiveness, salvation, and reconciliation with him. Are you kind? Who is it that you do good to? Who do you bless? Who do you love? Who do you pray for? Is it only those whom you expect to do the same for you? Jesus says here that even unbelievers do that. Does your love, your good deeds, your kindness, your helpfulness only extend to those who will do the same for you? Even apes will scratch your back if you scratch theirs. Christ-like love goes beyond that, extends past that to enemies. Remember, who did we see Jesus praying for on the cross? He was praying for the very ones who had rejected him, betrayed him, torn apart his body, and who had just nailed him to a plank of wood and were mocking him. Until we show kindness toward those who do not deserve it and who cannot repay it, We are not loving the way God calls us to love. That is what love does. Love bears up under provocation without complaint, and love shows kindness to others. So that's what love does. But what does love not do? That's what we're going to see in the rest of verses 4 through 6 in 1 Corinthians 13. Paul will give us a list of things that love does not do. If we find ourselves doing the things that love does not do, we can be certain that we are not loving the way God commands us to love. Paul continues in verse 4 to say that love is not jealous. Or as one lexicon defines this word for jealous in this context, love does not have intense negative feelings over another's achievements or success. Love does not have intense negative feelings over another's achievements or success. So basically, love does not envy others. Love does not look at the prosperity of others and begrudge them for it or grow bitter toward them over it. Love doesn't say, why do they get to have that when I don't? Why does everything seem to work out for them while everything seems to always go sideways for me? Love doesn't say that. Why not? Because love is a commitment to the good of who? Others. So of course love is not going to say those things. Of course love is not jealous because love is happy over the achievements and the success of others because that is what love is seeking for, the good of others, not the good of self. When you read through the Gospels, you see that Jesus did not have a jealous or envious bone in his body. Even when he had no place to lay his head and his only earthly possessions were the clothes on his back, we don't hear one gripe leave his lips, not one complaint to his father about his situation in comparison to others. Why not? Because he's not jealous. Can we say the same about ourselves? When things are going badly for us, do we find ourselves resenting 
the good fortune of others and wishing that we could trade places with them. If so, then we are not loving at that moment. We have stopped being committed to the good of others and we've started being committed to our own good over and above the good of our neighbor. Love is committed to the good of others before self. Paul says next that love does not brag and is not arrogant. One lexicon says that this word for brag means to, quote, behave as a windbag, unquote. Behave as a windbag. And another lexicon says that this word means to heap praise on oneself. Heap praise on oneself. Charles Hodge, commenting on this Greek word for brag, said that this, quote, includes all forms of the desire to gain the applause of others. Love does not seek to win admiration and applause, unquote. The word for arrogant means puffed up. And this is a word we have seen repeatedly in this letter to the Corinthians. They were puffed up. And to be puffed up means to be swelled up with a sense of your own self-importance. And that is totally contrary to what we hear Paul command us in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 3, where he says, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind. Regard one another as more important than yourselves. Now, did Jesus brag? Was Jesus puffed up? No, we don't see Jesus being that at all when we read the Gospels. But do we brag about ourselves? Are we swelled up with a sense of our own self-importance? Maybe you don't, maybe you don't heap praise on yourself uh, publicly. Maybe you don't brag in front of other people, but inside you are swelled up with a sense of your own self-importance. If that's you, if that's me, we are not being loving. <clears throat> Continuing on in verse 5, Paul says that love does not act unbecomingly. Love does not act unbecomingly. To act unbecomingly is to act in a way that invites disgrace and brings shame not only upon yourself, but upon those who are connected to you. Paul uses the same root of this word in chapter 11 when he teaches in verse 4 against men in the Corinthian congregation acting in a way that would shame their head, their authority, that is Christ. And in verse 5 of that chapter, he teaches against women in the congregation acting in a way that would shame her head, her authority, either her husband or her father. When we become so focused on ourselves that we're willing to act in a way that disgraces or shames or embarrasses others, then we have ceased to love. Jesus never did that. Now, plenty of people were ashamed of him. Plenty of people were embarrassed by his words and his actions, but it was never, ever due to inappropriate behavior on Jesus' part. Now, Paul is not telling us here that if we're loving, we will never, ever embarrass anyone ever for any reason. No, you might embarrass someone by sharing the gospel. Does that mean you shouldn't share the gospel? Of course not. So Paul's not talking about never embarrassing anyone for any reason, that love never does that. What he's talking about is the kind of selfish behavior that needlessly and recklessly brings disgrace. Love does not do that. Love seeks to preserve the honor of others, 
not trash it. Love also, Paul says, does not seek its own. Back in chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians and verse 24, Paul said to these believers, let no one seek his own good but that of his neighbor. And in that chapter in verse 33, Paul said, just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of the many, so that they may be saved. Because love is committed to the good of others, it does not seek its own. John Calvin had a good clarifying comment on this statement by Paul in 1 Corinthians 13, this, this statement about love not seeking its own, when he said, quote, Paul does not here reprove every kind of care for ourselves, but the excess of it, which proceeds from an immoderate and blind attachment to ourselves, unquote. Love is not immoderately and blindly attached to itself. If love is a choice between doing something that builds up self and doing something that builds up someone else, love is going to choose that which builds up someone else every single time. If love is a choice between doing something that keeps self safe and doing something that points people to salvation in Christ, love will choose to do that which points people to salvation in Christ every time, even if it means imperiling self. Is that not what Jesus did? Is that what you and I do? We never see Jesus seeking his own. Why not? It's because he was single-mindedly focused and driven by a pursuit of the good of others, not himself. He was doggedly pursuing bringing glory to his Father, and he was doggedly pursuing accomplishing our salvation. His own temporal self-interest occupied zero space in his mind. Zero space. When Satan tempted him in the wilderness after Jesus had gone 40 days without food, do you notice that all of the temptations that Satan threw at Jesus were geared toward promoting what was in Jesus' own personal self-interest? Turning stones into bread so that he could eat. He was awful hungry after 40 days, no doubt. Another temptation was for him to throw himself off the temple so that the angels would have to come and bear him up on their hands before he hit the stones in order to attract attention to himself. Satan tempted Jesus by offering to give him all the kingdoms of the earth if he would just bow down to Satan. No need to go to the cross. I'll just give it to you. Just bow before me. I'll just give it to you. No need to suffer. I'll just give you the kingdom. Why didn't Jesus fall for any of those temptations? Because Jesus is love itself. Jesus was so committed to the good of others and to the glory of his Father and the salvation of his people that those temptations could not find so much as a finger hold in the heart of Jesus. He wasn't concerned about himself, and so those selfish temptations found no hooks in his heart to attach to. The reason why you and I fall so easily into temptation is because we are far too selfish, far too concerned with what is good for me, and far too little concerned about what is good for the glory of God and of others. If we were more loving, we would be less prone to giving in to temptation. At its heart, all sin is selfish. 
Next, love is not provoked. Paul does not let up. Love is not provoked. This verb means to provoke to wrath or to irritate. Love does not become irritated. All those times when someone does something or says something and it, quote-unquote, gets on your nerves. What is happening there? You are not being loving. On those days when you are, quote, in a bad mood and people need to tiptoe around you, what is happening there? You are not being loving. You are being selfish. Yes, you may be sick. You may be hormonal. You may be suffering. You may have bills to pay. Your car may have broken down. You may have had a bad day at work. All of that sure makes it a whole lot easier to become irritable, but at the end of the day, you cannot blame your irritability on any of those things. According to Scripture, you can only blame it on your own lack of love for others, on your own sinful selfishness. Let me ask you something. When Jesus was hanging on the cross, did he become irritable? Did he lash out at anyone? No. According to 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 23, while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Do you realize that on the cross, in the midst of all his suffering, if one little flame of irritation sparked in his heart, our entire salvation would have been forfeited Because Jesus would have, in that moment of irritability, ceased to be the spotless Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. There was no irritability in the heart of Jesus, even on the cross. Irritability is sin, lovelessness, selfishness. Irritability is one of those respectable sins that we tend to sweep under the rug and make countless excuses for. It is time for each one of us, especially myself, to stop making excuses and come to grips with the fact that our irritability is simply and plainly wicked selfishness and a lack of love. That's what it is. Verse 5 ends with Paul saying that love does not take into account a wrong suffered. Love does not keep a record of wrongs. The person who is loving does not keep a little notebook in his head that makes note of every wrong thing that someone says or does against him. Love does not keep track of such things. Love does not consider itself off the hook for caring for someone once that someone has sinned a certain number of times against you. Remember Peter's question to Jesus and Jesus' answer to Peter in Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 to 22. That passage says that Peter came and said to him, that is Jesus, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Peter thought he was being quite generous there. What did Jesus say? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. Peter thought maybe he'd be off the hook in caring for someone if their sins against him reached the critical mass of seven sins. But Jesus let him know that, no, there is no point at which you are off the hook from being committed to the good of someone else. Love understands that. 
Love gets that. In verse 6, Paul describes love as something that does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. If we understand that God is love and that God is the source of all love as he defines it, this verse ought to make perfect sense to us. To rejoice in unrighteousness would be to rejoice in what God hates. Rejoicing in unrighteousness is completely contrary to who God is, and therefore it's completely contrary to what true love is. If we are full of God's love, then we are not going to find any occasion for rejoicing in any form of unrighteousness. Instead, love always rejoices with what? The truth. The truth. Notice that Paul does not place any conditions upon this rejoicing with the truth. He doesn't say that love rejoices with the truth only when that love serves your own self-interest. No, if you are loving, you will rejoice with the truth even when the truth is going to result in some not-so-pleasant consequences for yourself. Since the truth is what is best for God's glory and for the good of others, love will rejoice with it even if it causes pain to oneself because ultimately love is not concerned with the good of self. Love is concerned with the good of others. For example, if I slander someone behind their back and they get hurt because of it, but they end up not finding out who it was that caused their pain, what would selfishness on my part do? Well, selfishness would prefer to keep that truth of my slander under wraps. If I'm walking in selfishness, I'm not going to confess the truth about what I did because I want to avoid the pain of coming clean. But if I'm walking in love, I will confess what I did to that person because they need to know. If I'm committed to the good of that person I slandered, I will rejoice with the truth. That is, I will, despite the pain and sadness it brings me to do it, I will gladly tell them the truth about what I did because of the good that it will do to them. The commentator Anthony Thistleton said of love rejoicing with the truth that, quote, Love does not use manipulative devices and subtexts to protect itself from truth or from the truth. It is honest and open, not defensive, for it has placed the good of the other above the good of the self, unquote. Love rejoices with the truth. We have seen what love does and what love does not. Now we will see that love does not give up. Love does not give up. In verse 7, Paul writes that love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. We see in this verse that there is no breaking point to love. Love bears all things. That is, love bears up against all difficulties. That's what one lexicon says. Love bears up against all difficulties. There is no burden or strain that will come upon us in loving someone that will crush our love for that person if we are loving with this kind of love. It is a messy thing to love other sinners, whether that person is a family member, a brother or sister in the church, or a stranger. It is easy to be committed to the good of someone who is equally as committed to your own good. You know, the I'll scratch your back if you scratch mine thing that the apes even have mastered. But what about when it is someone 
whom it is genuinely painful to love. Someone who brings a lot of baggage into your relationship with them. Baggage that makes you want to run in the other direction. This verse tells us that if you are loving with the kind of love that Paul is talking about, there is no baggage that this love cannot stand up under. There's no baggage in that person's life that can stop your commitment to their well-being in Christ. Has not Jesus' love for us borne all things? All the sinful baggage that we brought into our relationship with him. Not only does love bear all things, but love believes all things. Love believes all things. Paul is not saying here that love is gullible or that love looks at everyone through rose-colored glasses and is blind to reality. After all, he just said in verse 6 that love rejoices with the truth. Sometimes there are people we encounter who we are tempted to think are outside God's reach. People we think that God cannot save. People we think that God cannot cause to grow beyond where they are right now. But love does not stop believing that God can save that lost person we are trying to reach. Love does not stop believing that God can help that brother or sister overcome the besetting sin that they are ensnared to year after year, decade after decade. Love keeps believing in the life-giving promises of God and in the life-transforming power of God's word. Love does not lose faith. And therefore, love does not stop ministering to others the truth of the gospel. Love believes all things. Love hopes all things. This goes hand in hand with love believing all things. Despite the insurmountable obstacles we encounter in the lives of those who we are trying to love, true love does not stop being confident in God. Love's hope is not in the sinner, but in the God who is at work in the sinner. Love continues to have a sure hope in the gracious promises of God. There may be believers in the church who we know are trusting in Christ and are faithful to the true gospel, but whom we just can't quite figure out. They have convictions about secondary matters that we disagree on, and we can't quite understand why they believe what they believe and why they do what they do. And just so you know, they're probably thinking the exact same thing about you. They seem hung up on this one sin that no matter how many times they've been counseled on it, they don't seem to break free from it. But love doesn't give up on them. Love maintains hopeful confidence that the gracious promises of God will carry them to heaven just as they will carry us. And knowing that we will be together in heaven for eternity reminds us that we need to keep loving them in the here and now. It is that kind of hopeful love that Paul expressed for these Corinthians back in chapter 1. Remember what he said about them? We've seen as we've walked through this letter all the problems that this congregation had. If we were in Paul's position, we'd be tempted to just walk away from this disaster that is the church in Corinth. But what does Paul say about them in chapter 1? In verse 8, he says of them that God will confirm them to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 9, God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. What confidence Paul expresses in God for the Corinthians. All of their problems had not shattered his 
loving hope for them. Finally, love endures all things. There is an unfailing steadfastness to love, a quality to love that is able to hold out no matter what. There may be dark days ahead for us as believers. There may be times of persecution, disease, financial distress, you name it. But if we have the kind of love that Paul is talking about in chapter 13, there is nothing that will come upon us that will be able to separate us from our love for each other. If I have the kind of love that Paul is laying out for us in this passage, there will be no amount of persecution that will make me stop being committed to your good. If you have this kind of love, there will be no amount of affliction that will cause you to stop being invested in my good. This is the kind of love that cannot be run out of town. Do you get what I'm saying? Nothing can get in the way of this kind of love. The past few years, we have seen the love of many grow cold. We've seen the love of a lot of people in this nation and in the church around this nation die out over a virus, over financial difficulties, over a commitment to certain politicians. A love that dies is not the love that Paul is talking about because this love endures all things. The love that Paul has described for us in these few verses is not a love that any one of us has within ourselves, in and of ourselves. It is not the kind of love that any one of us can conjure up within our hearts. The love that has been described is nothing short of God's love. This is a love that has a glory about it that we all have fallen short of every day. So how can we come to possess this kind of love? Well, if Christ is the manifestation of this love, remember, God is love, it stands to reason that we cannot come to experience loving others in this way apart from him. Without Christ, we are still dead in our sin and selfishness. Without Christ, we are still idolatrously committed to our own personal profit. Without Christ, this kind of love is something that we actually want nothing to do with. Don't give me this. I don't want to live this way. If we're still dead in our sins, we don't want anything to do with this. We're committed to ourselves, not to God, not to others. If that's our attitude, we show that we remain under the wrath of God. But when we turn from our sin and selfishness, and we trust in Christ alone to save us by his sacrifice on the cross for our sins, and we ask him to rule over our lives in faith, he then brings us into the experience of this love, his love for us. Listen to what Romans chapter 8, verses 35 to 39 says about believers, those who have come to experience the love of Christ for them. Paul writes there in verse 35, Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. 
For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. There is nothing in all the world that can separate us from the love of Christ, because his love endures all things. Nothing that can separate us from the love of Christ, neither his love for us nor our love for him that he has poured into our hearts. It is only when we have come to experience this love, Christ's unfailing love for us, that it is only when we come to experience that that we can then extend this same love to others. Once we have come to Christ in faith, we're going to still find ourselves every day falling short of this kind of love, not loving the way we ought to love. So what do we do if we find ourselves in that situation? What do we do if we're already trusting Christ, but we're struggling to love this one person or these several people? Well, first, we need to confess our sinful lovelessness to God, and we need to ask for his forgiveness. And then we need to plead for his help to love others in the way he has loved us. And then we need to keep preaching to ourselves the gospel of his great love for us in Christ. That is, we need to fill our hearts with the truth of his love for us. And then, and only then, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we will be able to again pour out that great love to others. If we find ourselves empty of this love, we need to go to the source of this love, the Lord Jesus Christ, and ask him to help us love others in that way.